Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you for being here. I've got some breaking news for you. It's always fun when I get to bring you breaking news. Usually, I think of this show as the deep dive into all things and uh, sometimes, though, it turns into, ooh, I can tell you something you haven't heard. The VA secretary is out. David Shulkin, he has been given his walking papers, and he has been replaced with uh, Ronnie Jackson, the president's uh, personal physician. Now, I will note that when I first saw the headline, and producer Mike can attest to this, I thought, I, I read... Trump replaces it was something like Trump replaces VA secretary with personal position. And I immediately thought of that guy. Doesn't he have like a like with the the handlebar mustache and the kind of right? Isn't he? He's quite a he's a he's a colorful character. You know, Trump's longtime personal position. The one who wrote the note about how, you know, the president can bench 700 pounds. He can run hundreds of miles in three minutes and. He is the most uh, handsome and and virile and and wonderful man to have ever walked into my office. Um, Not that doctor. This is actually a a long-standing and very well-respected White House physician. So uh, he's going to be replacing Shulkin with Ronnie Jackson. And uh, it sounds like it'll be a good move. This had been rumored for a while um, that there was going to be a a shakeup with the VA secretary, I, I guess not really surprising at all that it's it's happened in this way. But see, I get to bring you the news of it because firings tend to happen a little later in the day. So if you will, with this administration, I tend to be the fired administration official breaking news one-stop shop for all of your needs. Someone just got the boot from the Trump White House? We tell you about it here in the Freedom Hut. Uh, the But the... VA is a place that needs a lot of reform. I've got a number of friends who work on that issue, uh, a couple in particular who work on it, who have been working on it for years. And it is always a reminder to folks out there that in, an, in a situation where you have a, a group of Americans who are not being given something by their government, but we're talking about veterans. They are owed something by their government, and they are a particularly uh, worthy and well-supported by the rest of the public group of people, right? So, so they, they are owed this care, and the American people overwhelmingly are supportive of, as they should be, our veterans. And still there are embarrassing uh, terrible deficiencies at some of these VA facilities. And still it's run like a slow-moving, just a lethargic, unaccountable bureaucracy in many ways. Now, I've heard from a lot of veterans all this, and I'll just say that 
Some facilities are well run, and a lot of people working for the VA do a great job. A lot of doctors and and people that are providing care are doing great stuff. And you know, I so I think that we focus the the problems get the news stories. And this is true of a lot of things, right? But when we're talking about Veterans Affairs Administration or Veterans Administration, um, the the problems are what you hear about, and the good stuff you just don't hear about and you assume that it's there and that's all fine. So I think we can get a, a, a sense in our in our minds, understandably from the media coverage, that things are worse than they are. They're bad. There are problems, but uh, it's there are also bright spots. Okay, but you got Shulkin out. Apparently, wasn't such a good job. Was he the what was what was his pro? He wasn't the the flight guy that took the exp- that took the flights. Is getting in all the that's Pruitt, right? EPA guy. Yeah. So. Shulkin, I, I, people have been saying he wasn't doing a great job. I'm not really clear on what the knocks on him were. Right now, you're just hearing from Trump, oh, yeah, uh, you know, he did a great job, served our served our country and our veterans. Great. So we'll see. Anyway, that, that's the breaking news. VA secretary is out, replaced by Ronnie Jackson, the White House physician. And uh, we hope that Ronnie can do a – Dr. Jackson can do a really – Excellent job fixing the problems in the VA system. Oh, but I just, as an aside, I always mention the VA to people when we talk about government-run health care because I'm like, if if you think that the government could scale for 320 million people the health care that it's giving to millions of veterans but, you know, a small percentage overall of the U.S. population, um, I have to... So Mike, tell me what the veteran, how many, uh, how many veterans are receiving care from the VA? I, I have a number in my mind, but I'm actually not confident enough to throw it out there. Um, but it's a small percentage of the overall population, and they still have waiting lists and all these things. And you hear some VA facilities are filthy and terrible and bad things going on. So that's the uh, the breaking news for you. Um, just to give you a sense of where we're. How much? What do we got, Mike? Uh, they say that they have nine million veterans enrolled in the VA. I was going to say seven million, but okay. I mean, this is my favorite game now. I'm always just going to say a number close to the number that I ask you for as we're going through the show, you know. So uh, how many jelly beans are in that jar, my friend? Oh, 2,317. I was going to say 2,312. I'm a genius. Because who, really, who can really call me out on it? Um, but anyway, th- so there's that. That's the breaking news for you. And uh, it is my special privilege as a show that runs a little later on in the day, as the as the evening entertainment for America on the radio here, uh, that I get to tell you about people that get booted from the administration and the prospect of really good stuff happening with uh, as a result of the replacement. So there's that. Uh, now, now I also want to give you a sense of where we're... I wasn't planning on giving you that break of news, but it literally hit right before he came on air, so... That changed a bit of the uh, rundown today on the show. Tell you else we're, where else we're going. I will talk to you about Roseanne Rebooted or the Roseanne Reboot. Uh, usually I'm somebody who thinks that reviving franchises is lazy. You know, when someone's like, yeah, let's make a, a movie of the A-Team. And then they just ruin the A-Team, you know. I mean, Hannibal, I mean, these are awesome characters. Why they have to ruin? Anyway. But this case, the reboot worked. I want to talk to you about why that is. We'll also discuss some of the the legal ins and outs of what's going on with uh, Trump and these allegations of the affair and the NDA. That'll come later on in the show. Oh, North Korea, Kim Jong-un, first trip outside the country as leader. 
He was, you know, I, I think about things like this sometimes. You know, Kim Jong-un was at a Swiss boarding school, I believe, was what was reported for, you know, when he was in high school, he was in a Swiss boarding school. Can you imagine if you're the guy who's like, yo, the the first time I ever smoked a cigarette was with the dictator of North Korea. Like, there's somewhere, there's a little, there's like a little kid, not a little kid anymore, but there's some, you know, probably wealthy European kid who's like, well, yes, I smoked a cigarette with Kim Jong-un, and uh, we talked about how much he liked Green Day. I knew there was a problem right then and there. Right then and there, I knew this was headed for catastrophe. There's got to be somebody, right? He was there. He, he was outside the country, and now he's... Now I'm getting scared, too. Hopefully hopefully North Korea doesn't get any uh, any wind of this. Otherwise, they'll hack into all my stuff, and the, fr- the Freedom Hut will be will go dark for a few days because of North Korean hackers. Uh, but we'll talk about the, the very real uh, and very important discussions between Trump and Kim Jong-un that are coming up in a bit. Um, and uh, a little bit of a follow-on on some of the gun debate that's happening. I was uh, on Brett Baer's show last night and was able to get into some of the 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 dissonance on the left. So, so do they want to ban guns or not? Do they want to repeal the Second Amendment or not? Can we Can we just get clarity on that? Can someone just... Let me know what the what the what is with that. You know, what's really going on? The answer is, of course, they don't want to get tied down to any one position because if they have to defend it, then they have to put people forward who know something. It's much better to just have kids marching. Whose streets are streets? We just want to stop violence. Who doesn't want to stop violence against innocent people? The answer is no one. So that's what uh, that's what's coming up later on. I am still very much uh, focused on what's going on with immigration, as you know, I, among my my favorite policy issues to discuss here on the show. And, and I, I'm trying to get a real answer as to whether or not it is it is feasible for Trump under his authority as the commander in chief to use military funding for the creation of a wall. Would it have to go through an appropriation process in Congress? I've heard different. Aren't you hearing different things? I'm hearing different things, which makes me think, you know what? Maybe just give it a whirl, you know, maybe just roll the dice on this one. I would remind you all that on the issue of immigration, the Obama administration was planning. First, they had DACA, which, as you now know, DACA was just the beachhead. That was the foothold in a much larger program of amnesty. The second phase of DACA was DAPA, Deferred Action. So DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. That's what Obama did. And now courts are telling Trump he can't undo that, even though Obama did it under the auspices of his authority as the commander-in-chief, or as the chief executive of the government. Uh, Trump can't undo it, according to a court. I think that won't stand. But for now, you know, the never-Trump judiciary is getting its way. But Obama was... when it came to the exercise, the brute force exercise of power, Democrats have a lot of lessons to teach Republicans. They just do. And Obama was planning to have the and this was in the works at the DHS. It didn't get nearly enough attention, I think, when this was happening to give out for DAPA, deferred action for the parents of arrivals. So now it's not just kids. Now it's just illegals. Right. It's illegals that can claim some connection to and You know, they don't have the paperwork. But, oh, yeah, that's my kid. And, you know, now they're going to and they were going to give papers. The DHS was going to give paperwork, uh, work papers specifically 
to those to those individuals that would be covered under the program and a court i can't, it was a court down one of the circuit courts in texas uh put the hold up on it but you see that the reason the court did it was because obama knew that if they could take those steps and give out the paperwork it would be a fait accompli i don't know how to say this other than in the french i mean it would be a a thing that you could not on un- it would be very hard to undo it so just go do it and if the court says oh you shouldn't do that doesn't really matter you've already done it and it would also pressure the court's decision down the line if you had already given out all this paperwork and told people oh you can work in this country now you're going to say no you can't citizenship by the way another very similar dynamic if you give people citizenship even if it's you know if you give people citizenship taking it away is incredibly unlikely a lot of hurdles to that so why i'm thinking about this is because with trump on the wall i'm a little upset a little bit a little bit a little upset that the wall was not in the budget i think 25 miles in the omnibus bill which is just a ridiculous we got to come up with a cooler name for this you know this needs to be like the ninja rocket pack secret squirrel law something just give me something better than the omnibus bill but they didn't get anything worthwhile when it comes to the wall. And in fact, they actually had restrictions on the very paltry sum of money, $1.5 billion, whatever it was, for building the wall. What if Trump just was like, you know what? Army Corps of Engineers, CBs, just on the commander chief, just roll. We're going to start building a wall. We're on, we're facing a, a foreign invasion of drugs, which is a true statement. It's killing thousands of Americans. This is an emergency. And under my powers as president, I'm going to build a wall. Now, people would say, oh, Buck, how do we, what do we do about uh, getting the, the land rights down by the board and everything else? We could figure it out. You know, eminent domain can take a long time. It'll go through this whole process. But at least you'd get it going. At le- you know, m- maybe this is just a fantasy that I'm playing out here on air where the, where the president decides that he's going to just get it done and keep the promise. But I'm starting to think that something like this is going to happen. Maybe not quite in this way, but if he's going to rely on the Congress, it's not going to happen, right? If this is going to be left in congressional hands, there will not be a wall, and that is a big problem. If there is no wall, and we have no reason to believe there will be a wall, Republicans are going to lose the midterms, folks. And then guess what? The White House is under siege. It is a straight-up impeachment battle until Trump's re-election. That's not what we want for this country. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We have so much more show. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, we've got some lines lit. Let's get to it. Uh, Randy in Mississippi. How are you, my friend? Buck, how are you, my man? You doing all right? I'm just rocking and rolling, sir. Thank you for your call. Look, man, real quick, I I heard now a source uh, with as much uh, uh, clout as yours last week sometime that the president can use some of that funding if he declares it a national security. And that's what people are saying. Now, you, you, but, you know, if you read like the Washington without, Post, New York Times folks, they say... That no, the, to reroute money needs an act of Congress. You need 60 votes in the Senate to change a now, budgetary measure. They, they also say climate change and the world's going to fall over in 50 years and we're all going to be dead. 
But, uh, you know, I want I want to make one more point because I like you, and it's about this Stormy Daniels thing. What our president did is show these young men in the country how to take a woman out with class and uh, treat her like a lady instead of going there and bite her on the lips. They put some ice on that. Now, these guys have to make their choice. What do they want? That was a classy move, man. You know, I, I've never went to bed with the wrong woman, but I sure woke up with a few. You know uh, Randy, uh, I don't know. A married man needs to uh, needs to honor his marriage vows, my friend. He's also got a little baby. But he didn't beat her or assault her the way that Clinton allegedly did to several women, by the way. But I appreciate you calling in, Randy, and thank you very much for that. Yeah, is what Clinton did worse to Randy's point? Yeah, it's worse. But if Trump did this, I know a lot of you believe that he didn't. If Trump did this, it's not cool. Do I care as a policy matter? No, but it's not good. It's not good. Let's let's come on now, everybody. We've all got standards, right? We're, now you could say you don't care, not your business, not your problem. Fine, but that's different than saying you know it's uh, not not anything. If that were to have happened, I think uh, I think that's fair distinction to draw. Charlie in Ocean City, Maryland. Hey, Charlie. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Buck. I wanted to talk to you about that wall, and you had mentioned just previous to that about the different uh, uh, military units, and one of them was the Mobile Construction Battalions. I was a part of them from 1965 to 1969, did a couple tours in Nam. We built lots and lots and lots of stuff. All Trump's got to do, okay, military, this is your project. Get the mobile construction battalions down there. Because let me tell you, the officers in the battalion all had engineering degrees. So they know what to do. Oh, I have no doubt the military could do it and do it very, very well. It's just a question of does the president have the authority when it comes to the budgetary matter of the resources needed to build the wall to just divert Uh what's, you know— money for fighter planes? Actually, no, it's going to be money for a wall. Can he do that? And what I was trying to get at, and and thank you for your service, sir, and thank you for your call. What I was going to get at before is, what if the president just says do it? There's always that option. Obama used to try that. He tried it with uh, DAPA as well. Just, yeah, give them them work permits because I say so. Completely not legal. Another way of saying illegal. But he was just going to do it. And then, you know, try to make him take it back, right? More on immigration coming up, folks. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Door door and take the census count. And the question is this. Is this person a citizen of the United States? What's wrong with that question? First, it violates the Constitution, which Why? requires census tabulation to be done on every person, everyone who lives in the United States, not necessarily just on citizens. Second, as a practical matter, it undercounts people who live in states or in areas that may need federal funding, so it shortchanges. But hold on, you're saying it undercounts them because they won't reveal it, they will hide, you're saying, whether or not they're a citizen. Because, uh, you know, on the face of it, it looks like it's looking for transparency. It looks as if you'll be able to get an accurate count of how many undocumented immigrants are here versus citizens. Well, that may be the spin that the administration is trying to put on it. No, no, 
That's actually true. You see, the Democrats don't want an accurate count. They don't want people to know how many illegals there are in California. I think a lot of even Californians who are not necessarily right wing would go, whoa, that's a lot of English as a second language instruction in public schools and emergency room visit payments that go to people that aren't supposed to get them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. What he started, that was a Blumenthal there speaking to Alison Camerata. And Blumenthal, what he says is just not true. It's not an opinion. And that's why they're they're bringing these lawsuits now, because whether we're talking to Becerra, the attorney general in, in Los Angeles, I mean, not Los Angeles, uh, California, or here in New York, Eric Schneiderman, our own terrible attorney general. Um, they're bringing these lawsuits just to bring lawsuits. In this case, I, I think they do not have uh, anything to stand on here, really. The federal government is constitutionally mandated to have a census. Federal government can choose what census questions to ask. The notion that somehow you can listen to it, they're violating the law because they're counting all the people. Yeah, we know they're counting everybody. They're, at, they're not saying if you're an illegal, don't fill this out. They're just saying, you know, are you an illegal? By the way, I assume you could leave it blank. Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked about uh, whether there would be enforcement of the census under the Trump administration. This was interesting. The goal is to have data uh, that we can use for specific things. Um, and we think that having accurate data is important. I'm not aware of a uh, mass campaign to start fining individuals, but we certainly uh, want people to follow the law. And we want them, whether it's the census or anything else, people should follow the law and the law should be enforced. You see, Democrats disagree with that. They don't want the law to be enforced when it comes to immigration. And they don't even want good data. You see, they want the maximum number of maximum number in terms of headcount because they want federal funds. What really that means is that people that are not supposed to be in the country in the first place are counted in the number of how much federal government funds that comes from you and me, my friends. If you're listening to this show in Texas, uh, Indiana, Florida, Montana, wherever. Your tax dollars are going in the form of grants and, and other funding to California and to programs that are giving resources to illegals. That, that, that is happening. So understand that as we go forward here. And that's why they want the number to be as high as possible. Uh, I think the undercounting, by the way, is not, is, uh, n- not really the concern. I, I, don't, I don't believe that that's what really gets Democrats upset here. I think what, what, the reason they oppose it so much is they don't want accuracy. And you see Camerata there even asked. She goes, well, isn't this just about getting accurate numbers? You know, shouldn't we know? The census, it's all about knowing what the numbers are. No, no, they, they, they don't want that. The, the Democrat Party, you see, they, there's no way for them to go back. They've been lying to the American people about immigration as, a fact, as a, uh, an issue of numbers. They've been lying when it comes to the impact on the economy and the impact on, on, on communities and what it's doing over the long term to American culture and rule of law. They've been pretending for a few decades now that unrestricted immigration, virtually unrestricted immigration from the third world, particularly people who can't speak English, can't read in any language in many cases, come here with no particular or discernible skills, 
uh, is always going to be a benefit to the economy. And, and you look at this at a at a micro level instead of at the macro. What does it do to different villages and towns? Schools that all of a sudden now have 50 percent or more of the households sending their children to schools that don't speak English at home. And the kids have to have instruction. Remember, ESL, English is a second language. Are, are those economies all booming? No, they are not. What a shock. Uh, so we've been lying to you about this for a long time. And Democrats are now all in on it because they either get the amnesty that they want and therefore change forever the political makeup of this country. So that, you know, this whole thing about, oh, we're going to fight over working class voters in some states who could be Democrats, could be Republicans, depends on the year, the time, the message. It's just going to be, well, now there's a, a, a mono, a political monolith. We're going to be a uniparty, a one-party state. And there'll be some Republicans in opposition who are there, you know, oh, we, we, we have thoughts, too, and no one's going to care. A lot of other countries, that's the case, by the way. You know, it's interesting that here we have a roughly 50-50 split, Democrat, Republican. A lot of other places, there's a dominant political party, and it's not a good thing. It, has, it is not good for uh, governance. It's not good for corruption and a whole bunch of just run down the list. So the census just once again exposes the Democrats in a way that they don't want to be exposed. Um, and that, and what, what's also interesting, and I mentioned this yesterday, but I wanted to get a little more into it, that they don't want the numbers to be clear when it comes to enforcing the Voting Rights Act. Now, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, conservatives, Republicans are generally critical of the way a lot of the Voting Rights Act stuff has been going in recent years. Most notably because we use a really, we, if a place was discriminating against African Americans in the 60s or the 70s, it basically is treated like it still discriminates against them today for the purposes of voting, including places that have had tremendous demographic change that are much more um, heavily minority than they were in the past. But when you look in some of the neighborhoods that were predominantly African-American in the past, uh, and the, the one that comes to mind for me, most obviously, is, is uh, the part of Los Angeles known as Compton that was overwhelmingly African-American. Now it's uh, majority his, Hispanic. When I say Hispanic, it's immigration from Mexico and, La- and uh, Central America. A lot of it illegal. Here in New York City, too. Uh, it used to be known as just as Harlem. And now, in fact, it is, well, in part, Spanish Harlem is how it is referred to here. So there's a lot of demographic change that has been happening in these cities. And, and it hasn't meant there's been some huge boost in prosperity of the wages for those living in those communities, for example, right? It's not like this just brings all these amazing benefits. Democrats lie and lie and lie about immigration because, one, it suits their virtue signaling preferences. They they continue to spend all of their time in neighborhoods. I'm talking about the Democrats that are pushing these policies, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, you know, the, the, the Rachel Maddow's over at MSNBC. Do you think they live in neighborhoods where there's a lot of demographic uh, shift going on because of recent illegal immigrants? Of course not. You see this with the school system, too. Some of the biggest, most vocal proponents you'll ever see for public schools would never dream of sending their kid to public school in this country, particularly in some of the large Democrat stronghold cities. Oh, my gosh. You kidding me? What are you, insane? Never do it. Your kids, though, don't get any choice. right? Your kids have to go to whatever school they're assigned to, and that's the way it is. 
their kids, they'll send to private school or they'll find some other way. Or they'll live in a, in a district that is has a very high um, median income and therefore there's a lot more tax dollars that go into these schools. Remember, the Obama administration was kind of fighting that for a while because, and this, this is something else that was lost with all the other social justice warrior initiatives that Obama's team was chasing down for eight years, uh, but they were looking at ways to change the way that public schools get funded. And that's where they finally, you know, that's where the Democrat progressive mind goes or, or, or the ideology runs into the buzzsaw of the reality of like who's writing the checks and who actually runs the show. And, you know, if, if you're turning on, you know, NPR, MSNBC, CNN, any of these, ABC, NBC, any of these channels, and you see all these very wealthy anchors talking about how great public schools are and how great teachers unions are because they're Democrats. It's just tribalism. That's their team. But the moment you start to talk about, well, you know, maybe we should actually just do more school integration with uh, poor neighborhoods, minority neighborhoods. We should work on that. And it's going to affect them. Oh, no, 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 no. That's too much. And then all of a sudden you've crossed a red line. So there are limits to actually how much progressives really want when it comes to education. And there are limits with immigration, too. And the limit is, as long as the illegals don't live in my neighborhood, the more the merrier, it's great, because they're going to vote for the people that I like. They're going to vote for the party of now. And what is the Democrat Party really defined by? Illegal immigration. I mean, how is it really different from the Republican Party? Illegal immigration, abortion. More redistribution of wealth, more of a Marxist uh, tinge to a lot of things. But those are the, those are the two big, bright red dividing lines that you see. Abortion, and, and there's no room for pro-life in the Democrat Party at all anymore. You're out. And there's no room for stronger immigration enforcement in the, in the Democrat Party anymore. They've gone from excusing and kind of, you know, soft peddling and slow rolling the issues of illegal immigration to, oh, no, illegal immigration is basically a good thing. How dare you call them anything other than undocumented? They're the ones that are doing all the jobs that we need. They're, they're necessary for the economy. This this transformations happened in the last 10 years or so. Illegal immigration is if you're a Democrat, the mantra is illegal immigration is a good thing. And that's what they should really be forced to ask. That's what if we had a real class of journalists in this country, they would ask every single prominent Democrat on the issue of immigration is illegal immigration good. And if they said, well, no, we want legal immigration, but we have to deal with the people here, you'd say, well, why is it not good? They, they would start to stumble and fumble. They could not handle that hot potato for more than 10 seconds without looking like buffoons because the Democrat Party is the party of illegal immigration now. Straight up. That's the way it is. All right, we've got to run a quick break. We're going to get I bet there's some uh, more thoughts on gun control that I wanted to talk to you about in the next hour. Uh, so that's coming up. There's a... You, they've got these kids now that they're put not even the ones that you know of. There are other kids that are being put up for town halls and things. And I'm like, there's a reason we don't put 16 year olds on TV and say, hey, give me your opinions on really complex subjects, man. Uh, and we'll get into some of that and how exploitative the whole thing is. And I've been saying that from the beginning. And also then North Korea, uh, latest on that. Kim Jong uh, Jong Un is in China. It's kind of a big deal. He's rolling around in a bulletproof train which apparently can go 37 miles an hour. 
it's a, it's a slow train. It's not surprising, I suppose. All right, we'll run in a quick break. We'll be right back. When I hear the voting rights justification used to say this is why we need to do this, as someone who enforced the Voting Rights Act at the Justice Department for a number of years, the Voting Rights Act does not require this. And frankly, it's insulting to the people who gave their lives in the passage of the Voting Rights Act to use the Voting Rights Act as a perverse justification for voter suppression. That's Tom Perez. He's the chairman of the DNC. You know, I think uh, at some level, the administration is uh, is poking the Democrats a little bit. They're like, well, it's for the Voting Rights Act. I'm like, I'm not sure that's really what's going on here. I think they want accurate numbers. and The Democrats don't. But they also just like seeing Democrats get angry about this one. It's a little bit of a little bit of political trolling going on here. Um, but it, it also should be noted that the Democrat Party has. Uh, privilege the interests in recent years of illegal, predominantly Latin American immigrants into this country over African-American U.S. citizens. That's where most of the labor competition is happening in a lot of the cities that are sanctuary uh, sanctuary jurisdictions. Uh, that's actually where a lot of the labor displacement occurs. And Democrat Party is like, well, we we. uh are not we're not importing millions of uh, of voters from that side. We're importing millions of Latin American voters, so they get special treatment and attention. Uh, John in Winston Salem, North Carolina. Hey, what's up, John? Well, what's up is is this. I know that uh, Jeff Sessions a while back uh, uh, filed suit against the state of California for their refusal. Uh, in all of their sanctuaries, uh, cities, and, and them de- declaring themselves a sanctuary state uh, to cooperate with federal ICE officials. So my thought is, since they've already filed suit against the state of California, what would keep them from freezing those funds, not distributing a dime, until uh, the state of California says, okay, okay, we will fully cooperate uh, with with some kind of guidelines to guarantee that they really are going to cooperate, or even to to make it even better uh, to just go ahead and say, okay, you refuse to cooperate, very good. Those funds uh, that we're going to go uh, for you all are going to go to uh, more ICE agents, and I think that would be just the the best justice that could come out of this. Well, John, um, that's been the administration's strategy, as you know. We've had Attorney General Sessions on; he's talked about it here on the show. Problem is that it has to go through the courts. You know, all you need is one federal judge in California, for example, to say that they're putting a stay on any withholding of funds by the federal government to the state of California, and the funds keep flowing until the courts actually work on the issue. And you know, this may this is something that may go all the way up to the Supreme Court. So the Never Trump judiciary is among the most powerful tools in the arsenal of the left to stop the Trump agenda and just to stop the rule of law in the case of legal immigration in California. But it's going to continue to play out through the courts. Well, which is the which is the reason why they, uh, as it's been pointed out uh, recently, but maybe hasn't gotten even enough press, why they need to go ahead and say, okay, we're going to use the nuclear option. We're going to make sure that we can get our appointees in rather than just saying, okay, we have to have the Democrats go along with whatever nominee to the courts 
we want to we want to put in there. Yeah, I, I think the nuclear option, it's it's long past time for it. We, this notion that we should sit around and you basically need 60 votes in the Senate now to do anything. That's that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way the Constitution was set up. And this is garbage. So I'm with you, John. I say uh, let the let the nuclear option fly. Hit that big red button. Thanks for calling in. Uh, we've got a whole lot more coming up next hour at North Korea and also a gun control town hall that you're going to want to hear. The decision to hire or not to hire, the decision to sign a contract, go into business with a partner or a new client can be the difference between success and failure. And you need to have the best information at your disposal. That's where Global Verification Network comes in. They're the only dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. They are headquartered in Chicago. All the information you give them is stored here in the States. None of the work is offshored. None of the data gets stored overseas. It is all done here in the States, and all employees are also located here in the U.S. Go to MyGVN.com or call 877-695-1179. That's mygvn.com, 877-695-1179, Global Verification Network. Leave no stone unturned. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much, team, for being here. Great to have you, as always. We are entering, I think, the final stages of the uh, gun confiscation and just gun control freakout. We're in the final stages of it now. This happens in cyclical fashion time and again. There's a, a terrible shooting somewhere, and if it fits a narrative that the left can work with, meaning the perpetrator and the victims, and if it fits within their, the, the, the framework of let's blame the NRA, usually they can find a way to do it, not always. Um, but then they will engage in all these different campaigns of editorial writing and the news coverage and you know mobilizing people on the streets and all this stuff. You see this happen. And this time around, the... Uh, the Trump card, probably, uh, pardon the, there you go, the ace up the sleeve, so to speak, politically, has been the usage of kids to be the promoters of the message. And I think we're reaching the end of this because, keep in mind, the, um, keep in mind, the Democrats can't run on gun control in the midterms. They can't. And they will in certain states, right? They will maybe in New York and, and some other places where they're in relatively safe district. Maybe they'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, but they can't really at a national level. And the tough races, the ones that really matter, the Democrats are not in a position to run on gun control. In fact, we go back to the assault weapons ban. What was it, 1994? Democrats got crushed in that uh, midterm election. And they were they had gotten an assault weapons ban. So this is all about mobilization. It's all about getting uh, media coverage of Left of a leftist goal, in this case, the uh, changing of our national gun laws. And it's just to get people activated. And that's why when I was at the, I don't want to say at, I you know went to see it. I wasn't partaking, obviously. When I saw the March for Our Lives here in New York City, 
you know, you had people there with with women's march messages and, you know, you get this smorgasbord of leftist political activism that comes together. And I've said this before, but it bears repeating Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, a little bit of uh, Antifa is kind of a separate thing. But with these these large political movements, you see that it's cyclical, right? All of a sudden, oh, there's a big issue and there's people marching in the streets and there's all the media coverage and. It's just propaganda. It's messaging. I mean, let's understand that street marches in the era of social media are generally not going to get you what you want, right? People say, oh, Buck, what about the Tea Party? What about 120,000 people? Okay, I mean, if you get 100,000 people together on an issue that the media won't cover, well, then you're forcing them to cover it, right? That's different. But if you get 100,000 people together on an issue they're covering nonstop, day in, day out, gun control, gun control— then you know that you know you're you're preaching to the choir. I and mean, the people that were marching here in New York City, they're like, "We hate guns," and you could just see like you know shopkeepers and people looking down from their windows, like, "We hate guns too." It's like, yeah, everyone hates guns here. I get it. Even the a lot of the cops, NYPD, they're they're trained to think of guns in the hands of civilians as suspicious, even legal ones. I'm just going to say it. It's true. I had a lot of friends at the NYPD because of my time there, and there's kind of a, you know, maybe they're okay with, like, you having a, an over-under, you know, 20-gauge shotgun for sporting clays on the weekends. But anything else, what do you need a gun for? That's the attitude here in New York, and that's what they want to do. They're changing the culture. They're not going to repeal the Second Amendment now, but if they can get everybody on board with either, you know, we need to save children and that means less guns or just have more and more law enforcement across the country. Take the, like, what do you need a gun for attitude. It starts to shake things up. It changes things. But I do think we're in the final days of uh, maybe the final weeks of this. You know, they've they've squeezed all they can politically out of the issue. And it, it just became a stand in for anti-Trump activities. Like I said, I saw this. Uh, I saw a placard that Trump kills kids. I mean, this. How how this is Trump's fault or Marco Rubio's fault just defies any logic or, or reason whatsoever. It's just people saying crazy stuff because it makes them feel good to say crazy stuff. But we also have a, a, a different outcome here than we've had in other mass shootings, and that's because of the elevation of kids in this debate, that we should listen to them. Self-righteous kids running around, you know, screaming about, all kinds of different policy proposals on guns or just that guns are bad and they want to end violence and everything else. And you kind of, you kind of had a, a I'm trying to think of what's the, I already said smorgasbord. I'm, I'm, I'm coming up short with a synonym right now. It's going to say maelstrom, but I've used that word a few times on the show. Come on, Buck. Got to mix it up. Uh, quite a, Hmm. Let's just say a mixture. <laughs> Let's keep it really simple. Quite a mixture of different wrong opinions and foolish thoughts on one CNN panel in particular. I, I want to walk this through with you. Remember, this is on national TV, the so-called gold standard in TV journalism, CNN. And they got a panel of teenagers, like 17, 16-year-olds. 17 and 16-year-olds, some of them, are on this panel talking about guns. And you get a sense of what's really at work here when you listen to it. So uh, let's start with this. And it's Alison Camerata, who is the uh, moderator. 
But those students who were at the march, we're talking about from Baltimore, from Chicago, until we want to talk about the root causes, the conversation will never be complete well, and we won't get to the bottom Chicago of it. Chicago and Baltimore, to my recollection, have some of the strictest gun laws in the country. But don't you think the guns come in from the surrounding, from Indiana, Indiana, from the surrounding? Yeah. Notice how, so the, you heard two students there, right? We're, we're really doing the, the anatomy of the, of the CNN ambush, the anatomy of CNN propaganda. You're two students, both like 17, I think. And yet one is an African-American female, and she's talking about root causes, which is not actually a part of the Parkland uh, massacre discussions about gun control, root causes. I mean, that's not, that's something else, really. Uh, but she's talking about that, fine. And then you got the conservative student, who I will say is particularly, he's like, he's like, hey, I'm a conservative. Yeah. You, you're the, he starts yelling at them. I don't know if we have this part of the audio later. He goes, you're the racist. He starts yelling at them all. You're the racist. I'm like, oh, wow. He's, he's going there. Um, but notice how Camerata jumps in right away. You know, but, but, but don't you think that the guns come from other states? Oh, so it's not state-by-state restrictions. You want federal bans on weaponry then. That's what you have to want. If you're worried about other states being the pipeline for weapons to get in the hands of people to do bad things with them, then you need federal laws to pass. And if you're going to be talking about gun violence in general, you need federal laws about handguns. And what you really need is a handgun ban. But she won't go there. Notice how, though, she puts her finger on the scale for the Democrat students. They have relaxed no, they come gun in laws. From, they, That's how they're able no, to no, get and, and now, and, now and, and the left also wants open borders. And this will allow illegal <laughs> guns to flood into spicy. the country. Wait a minute. But do you think the guns come in from Indiana, as police say they do in Illinois? I don't know where they're coming from. I think it's a and problem no, that you say you don't that? know where they're coming from. We should know where these guns are coming do from. Not, the guns. Do you know and exactly where, where they're coming from? Why don't you want to have good guys with guns to protect you from criminals that are getting their weapons Who illegally? Who is carrying out these mass shootings? Okay, young do, do you, white do, men and now you're a racist. Why are you attacking white that's, people? That's Wait, the just that's, that's, see, there's so much going on there. Oh gosh, he got into you're a racist. Um, first of all, the, what he's referring to is in Chicago, where you have obviously terrible gun violence going on, and which is not school gun violence. So now it's just a more general violence discussion, and the left is, you know, oh, I understand these are separate issues. They're both important issues, but. We're tackling a whole bunch of things here on this panel with a bunch of 17-year-olds. and But the, the notion that guns that are sold in Indiana uh, end up in the hands of people in Chicago and there needs to be more laws passed, it's, it's already illegal to take. It's, you can't do that. You're, you're, you're breaking the law to cross state lines and sell them in Chicago. So what are you going to do about that? Right. What's the, how, how can you, you? You've got people who are already breaking the law, risking prison time. So what's the, what's the answer? Well, the answer has to be no gun sales then in Indiana because it's already illegal to take them to Chicago. So what's the or yeah, in this case, Chicago is what we're focused on. Uh, but then also notice how the student says uh, how the shooters are young white males. And notice, now listen to where the moderator here, CNN, remember, this is CNN, folks. This is CNN. Apples, bananas. Eh, it's all the same. Uh Notice how the moderator jumps in here. It's race. There are exceptions to the rule, but school shooters generally are young white men. Yes. Okay. False. Because she's implying that there's a notice that she comes in and she's just like, there are exceptions to the rule. That's actually not true. 
to, to say that it's young white males that do this. I mean, I, I guess it's what is the rule? As a proportion of the population, there, look, there are more white people than there are any other ethnicity in the country. By uh, a clear margin, I think it's some of the neighborhood of 70 percent of the country is white. Maybe 68 now, something like that. And mass shootings are actually tracking along with the demographic distribution in this country, which means there's about as many mass shooters who are Asian. There are about as many mass shooters who are black. There are about as many mass shooters. You know, you get on the line as you would expect based on population. So but you you see how these myths get propagated, not just among these kids who, you know, these teenagers who don't really know very much. Uh, but also the anchor jumps and whoa, there are exceptions to the rule. No, it's not a rule. It's not a rule. This is a myth that this is only a problem of young white males. You look at the well, what was the single biggest folks, the single biggest mass shooting ever in a school, Virginia Tech. Oh, that's right. Asian American. Um, but here, continue on with the clip. Okay. And they're also pumped up on meds, too. We cannot solely just say that it's mental illness. We're arming hate in our country. If we had more armed guards in our school, again, it would perpetuate the school-to-prison pipeline. We have to be cognizant. And how would it do that? Just just help me understand the law. Because if okay. you treat it like a criminal, you're going to act like a criminal. Exactly. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I love this one. School-to-prison pipeline. How did that even come into the discussion? If, if you have armed teachers... And remember, a lot of them would be probably concealed carry, so the students may not even know. It's going to it's it's going to send more. What they're saying, the school to prison pipeline is all about mi- minority men get sent to prison because of this this thing called the school to prison pipeline. People actually get sent to prison overwhelmingly because they commit crimes. But you'll notice the the social justice propaganda that has already been spread these are 17 year olds she's talking about the school to prison pipeline which is not a thing yeah there are people who are school age who commit crimes and go to prison but here's a really good idea if you want to avoid the school to prison pipeline don't do anything illegal when you're a student you notice how she's right there right right away with the whole well if you're treated like a criminal you'll be a criminal false I get treated like a criminal every time I fly in this country. The TSA acts like I'm Hannibal Lecter and they need to put one of those straight jackets on me and the mask so that I can't spit on people, more or less. And I do not act like a criminal. I don't go crazy because the TSA has been so rude to me. I always feel bad when I beat up on the TSA. I've actually had several TSA officers who were very nice to me and were like, I love your show, Buck. <laughs> I'm going through. So I was like, oh, man, what I've, I'm, I'm beating up on the bureaucracy, not you, man. You're cool. You're cool. I had a canine handler once for uh, airport security who was like, shields high. I was like, I love you too. And then I had to get patted down and everything, you know, by somebody else. But the notion that if you get treated like a criminal, you'll be one. I mean, this is just, this is just fatuous. This is foolishness. This is nonsense. But it's also what you expect when you put a bunch of 17-year-olds on a panel and have them try to deal with very complicated issues of criminality and sociology. And, you know, they won't do this with anything else. But because of the moment right now, because we've got students that are telling us how to do everything when it comes to gun policy, CNN is giving them a platform. You know, I just wonder, like, what, what is next? 
why don't we? Why doesn't CNN have a platform of of sixteen year olds who come together and tell us how the ne- negotiations with North Korea should go? You know, their lives are at stake too if there's a nuclear war. So you know, why not just bring a bunch of sixteen year olds on for that? Well, that would be weird, right? Hmm. Huh, CNN. What a shock. Uh, we got more on this, and also uh, got to tell you, we got uh, Stephen Yates joining us later on this hour to talk about North Korea. That'll be a really interesting discussion. And then uh, next hour, Emily Campagna will be with us talking about the possible legal pitfalls that President Trump is facing because of some of these uh, allegations against him. We'll get into that and more. Stay with me. You got to hear this uh, throwdown between Cuomo and Santorum on the Second Amendment, by the way. I remember when Santorum was a presidential candidate. Now he's like a pundit, right? He doesn't, no more politics, just pundit. Pundits run the country, by the way. It's a whole other discussion, but kind of true when you think about it. Pundits run stuff. They run the country. (laughs) Who would have thought? If I told you that like 15 years ago, I'd be like, that's ridiculous. The country's run by experts. There are Navy SEALs with Rhodes Scholarships that, you know, run the country. And it's like, or pundits, or actually TV pundits run the country. They are the most powerful people in the world right now. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. But where was I? Cuomo versus Santorum. Fight, fight, fight. Let it rip. And the frustrating thing, and this is what I've been trying to, to get through, is that there are things that can unify us. Usually when we have a, an issue of national import and yes. this horrific event and these horrific events at school we can actually try at times to unite and yes. see what we can do to work together yes my and brother and you got the president of the united states Wait, this morning tweeting i got a i love, I love the quote a bit yeah bro hey you even lift bro hey the morning guy he's about to be the primetime guy over there cuomo you know i'm on tv you know i'm likable i do the new stuff and i can bench a lot Will you bench? Continue. That the Second Amendment will never be repealed. We must have more Republicans. Who's calling okay. for a repeal of the so, Second Amendment? So, well, Who's just, calling for Justice it? Justice Stevens did. But he did not. It was in the context of a conversation about the fastest route to legal change. And, of course, if you hadn't, didn't have a Second Amendment, okay. you wouldn't have Heller. Can we stop for, it for would- a second? Look, look at the way he speeds up really quickly there. Always be concerned when the anchor just... You're like, wait, what? No, what Santorum said was true. He's like, he's like, hey, who wants to repeal? Nobody wants to repeal. And Santorum goes, well, actually, the Supreme Court, former Supreme Court justice just wrote a New York Times op-ed saying, yeah, it's time to repeal the Second Amendment. And Cuomo goes, hey, you know, but it's in the context of the thing with the other thing and the place and, and a little this, a little that, you know, a little here, a little there. It's like, no. In fact, it was quite clear. Repeal the Second Amendment, I think, was the title of the piece. There's not, there's not a context there, right? That's that's not what's happening. You know? Buck is supposed to eat a salad tonight with just a few ounces of grilled chicken. But there's no context to the fact that I'm probably going to have a giant cheeseburger that I may even put some bacon on. Because that's, that's just the fact. That is what is going to happen tonight. There's no context necessary. You know, a little this, a little that. They want to get rid of the Second Amendment. We know they want to get rid of the Second Amendment. They think it's a, an anachronism. It's from the era of people wearing breeches and muskets and tri-corner hats. 
And they should just be honest about it. If it's so common sense, if it's so obvious to everyone, why all the dissembling? Right? Why all the dishonesty? How about they just say, yeah, you know what? We're going to we're going to march to abolish. You know, they they could do this. Go through the process. Have at it. Have fun. Good luck trying to repeal the Second Amendment. And then what the liberals don't even think about is even more good luck trying to enforce that. Have fun. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. There are some things that I would like to believe are still beyond the taint of partisan politics. And and I know as I say that, many of you are (laughs) laughing at me, as you probably should. But I like to think of myself as a curmudgeonly optimist. Should probably be on a plaque above the door here in the in the radio studio the curmudgeonly optimist and and I, and I would like to believe that there are still some parts of America that are places that we can just enjoy and not get into the worst of our political instincts right not get into the worst of our political fights Disney you would think and I don't mean the company and the corporate and how they fired a bunch of people and had the and brought in H-1B visa people and had the, the people fired training their H-1B visa replacements. And, no, 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 no. I mean the, the product, okay? I mean things like the Disney movies. I have seen... I, I grew up on Disney movies. I know a lot of you did too, and I, I'm guessing those of you who have kids, the same thing is true for your kids. Although I haven't seen many of the recent... Uh, many of the recent Disney films, I saw... I saw The Sword and the Stone and Aladdin and The Lion King and, yeah, Beauty and the Beast. Great movie. First movie ever to be an animated film nominated for Best Picture. And that's when there are actually good movies getting nominated for Best Picture. As an aside here, just keep this in mind. The Shape of Water won, which I'm going to make fun of again later in the show probably. Uh, Saving Private Ryan got nominated. Didn't even win an Oscar. Didn't even win the Oscar for Best Picture. Okay. Think about how much film has changed. Uh, but the Disney movies, you think, are the thing that are, it's an area where we should be able to say, you know, this is for our kids, telling stories that are timeless and it's entertainment, but it's also can be inspiring and there can be moral lessons. Disney should be a good thing. The Disney product, Disney movies, Disney princesses should be something that uh, young girls, you know, little girls across the country can say, oh, you know, that's that's my favorite Disney princess, and they can enjoy the whole the storylines and everything else. And yet, you know, sure enough, even that, even that falls victim to the most uh, horrendous social justice warrior uh, politicization. And, and it also now brings in the discussion of, of abortion for a moment here which I talk about on the show because it's so important, but I know when I talk about it, a lot of you are probably like, you know what, I gotta I gotta go I gotta go cook dinner or I've gotta, you know, put the kids to bed or you gotta do something else. Because I understand it's uh it's the more you think about it actually, the sadder and angrier at least this is the case. I mean the more I think about it, the more I talk about it, the sadder and angrier I get. Uh, but here we have a story where abortion and Disney princesses are spoken of in the same sentence and it's hard to fathom 
such a situation until I tell you exactly what has happened here, and that is what I am about to do. Planned Parenthood in Pennsylvania, one of the Planned Parenthood uh, facilities, in Pennsylvania, which has an official Twitter account, put out the, the following tweet. We need a Disney princess who's trans. We need a Disney princess who's actually a union worker. In, in some ways, this sort of strangest, well, what is that? Anyway, we need a Disney princess who's an undocumented immigrant. We need a Disney princess who's pro-choice. We need a Disney princess who's had an abortion. How any functioning adult with even the this a, a semblance of a conscience or, or morality or, or basic decency uh, could put this out there is in, in many ways baffling, right? How someone could think that this is that that's never mind. This was an official tweet from a Planned Parenthood center that this was a thought in any human being's mind in this country is troubling. But it's also indicative of a much larger and and more disturbing truth right now, which is that in in the country, you know, there are some things, there are some issues where we understand there's a trade-off. One of them is people who are uh, are terminal, for example, have terminal illness and whether or not they have the, the right to die, whether physician-assisted suicide or not can be a thing. Now, whether you're for or against phys- physician-assisted suicide, there's at least a recognition really, across the board that this is a sad and difficult and, you know, this this is a, a bad, it's, it's a terrible, tragic thing that someone is, is dying and it's just a question of are you easing their pain or should you never do this? And I'm not trying to get into that discussion, but I'm just saying no one sits around celebrating it. No one's like, oh, yeah, the doctor helped someone take pills to end his or her life. Yay. No, it's a tough choice being made. What is so perverse about the abortion lobby in this country is that they are not content to even make this about a lesser of two evil situation. This happens, you know, you'll see people, they'll say this, you know, you'll have prominent comedians that'll come out, you know, female comedians say, oh, I had an abortion, they'll make jokes about it, they'll say they're going to have more abortions, and there's an effort to celebrate abortions among the Planned Parenthood supporting community as though it is a good thing, to put it front and center, to brag about it. And all I can really say to you about that right now, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to spend too much more time on it, is this, if there is such a thing as evil in our policymaking, it is that. And when you are an adult who thinks that we need to have a Disney princess who has had an abortion because that's a good message for young girls across the country to see on TV screens. You know, like it can't be about fairy tales. It can't be about Prince Charming and overcoming evil. It has to actually be a celebration of evil. It's very troubling, but it also tells you a lot about this so-called pro-choice movement. All right, we got to talk about North Korea. We're switching gears here in a second. Stay with me. We'll be we'll be right back.
we're going to be uh, cautiously optimistic, but we feel like things are moving in the right direction um, and that the meeting yesterday was a good indication that the maximum pressure campaign has been working. You saw um, him leave for the first time to uh, since becoming the leader of North Korea, leaving his country for the first time for that meeting. And we consider that to be a positive sign uh, that the maximum pressure campaign is continuing to work. And we're going to continue moving forward uh, in this process in uh, hopes for a meeting down the road. So you've got the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, in China, outside of his own country for the first time as leader. Uh, And you also have the upcoming, much-anticipated Trump-Un summit, which is going to be very interesting, assuming that it happens. So what do we make of all this? We've got our friend Stephen Yates with us now. He is the CEO of D.C. International Advisory. also formerly worked for Vice President Dick Cheney. Fun fact, Stephen speaks Chinese, which is pretty cool. And he is a candidate for lieutenant governor in the great state of Idaho. Uh, so we're hoping that that uh, works out well for him. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Buck. Great to be with you. All right, let's start with uh, Kim in China. W- what do you think this? What do you think this is? You know, people are reporting on it. We know he's there, confirmed. What's going on behind closed doors there? To the best of your ability to surmise. Well, for the most part, what it does is it reaffirms that China is in the driver's seat when it comes to where things are going to go with negotiations with North Korea. I think perhaps they might have been a little concerned that with President Trump opening up the possibility of direct negotiation and dialogue, that their interests might be sidelined. So I think this is a little bit of posturing and relationship building on their part, but then also to try to make it clear that if things move forward with the United States on this, that China will then put its other hand out to say, well, we helped deliver North Korea, so you should help us on this other policy area. Do you think China, from our perspective, is mostly being helpful in terms of the North Korea negotiations going into this, or is it really a double game, kind of both ways? I think it is a good measure of double game, but I do think that they can be relied upon to be helpful to facilitate a meeting. I just am less confident that they will be helpful in actual denuclearization of North Korea. What does China want when it comes to North Korea? Well, I think what it wants more than anything else is to have a relatively predictable buffer. And we could question how predictable North Korea has been over the last generation. It seems to oppose Korean unification, uh, which is odd given their own propensity to promote a one China policy that is a unified uh, China. Uh, But They don't want U.S. troops up at their border, which is the presumption of the possibility under a unified Korean peninsula. So I think they just want a prolonging of the status quo where they get migrant work, some trade, and keep the U.S. on its toes uh, by having Korea divided. We're speaking to Stephen Yates, CEO of D.C. International Advisory, also a candidate for lieutenant governor in the upcoming race there in the great state of Idaho. Uh, Stephen, tell me what you think uh, Trump and his team should be doing in terms of prep for this Kim Jong-un meeting that is going to be quite a sight or quite a thing when it happens. Yeah, I think this is at least as much spectacle as we've seen in an international summit, maybe going back to when Reagan walked out of Reykjavik. 
Uh, you just you basically have uh, the you know with with President Trump being willing to actually sit face to face with the leader of North Korea. If that's historic, uh, the team around the president has been correct in not making any real concessions prior to meeting and hearing what's proposed. Uh, we've actually had previous administrations in my judgment, make mistakes of easing sanctions or putting other kinds of concessions on the board before even having a meeting. And of course, it's important to remember a meeting is not an outcome. Uh, and if the goal is denuclearization of the, of the peninsula, that's a process. And so the meeting is just meant to kind of define some of the parameters of how you might in a verifiable way go about that. And I think that the team around the president has those kind of priorities and caveats in place so far, which leaves me at somewhat at ease with him taking the meeting. I would get concerned, though, if they actually believe that by having one meeting and making the, some kind of a diplomatic breakthrough, that that equates to progress on national security. I hope that's not the case. What does a realistic victory, I mean, I've been asking some of my uh, other friends who are fantastic analysts of all things going on in geopolitics this one Stephen I got to pose it to you what does a victory post summit between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un of North Korea look like uh, in terms of the days after right you, as you mentioned a process denuclearization but if Trump comes back and says the following uh, it would be a victory what what's the following well I, I'd say one thing that probably isn't considered very often that a form of victory for the president and for the United States is for him to go listen to whatever a proposed deal is, and if it's not in the realm of worthy of consideration, he just leaves. That actually is a victory if we hold firm to what our national interests are, stay with our allies, willing to listen, but if it's just not up to par, to walk away. No is always an answer that's legitimate negotiation. Beyond that, though, uh, I don't think it's realistic to think there is victory going down the deal-making process just based on the history of dealing with North Korea. Uh, I think there's a low probability, and maybe we're just seeing the leader of the North moving into this realm of where they really will give up their, the world's most dangerous weapons. Uh, the only countries that have done that have undergone dramatic political change, and the, really the only example is South Africa. And then you have the example of the Ukraine, that when it was going through transitions and the Cold War was ending, they gave them up in the promise of protecting their national integrity. And, of course, that promise was violated. Uh, so I, I don't have high confidence that, we'll le that there is a path to success on denuclearization by, ne by, by negotiation, but it would look like some kind of a stringent verification regime, and it would have to have some kind of enforcement that is – supported by North Korea's major trade partners, leading with China and some support from the Russians. And we just, I don't think, have very high confidence of that right now. Based on my reading, Stephen, of North Korean ideology, uh, the notion of giving up nukes, to me, would be akin to giving up the the reason for being for the regime. It, it, it exists to defend itself against outside aggression and to eventually reunify through force the Korean peninsula. So if they gave up nukes, it feels like people may look around and say, well, why is this guy in charge? Why do we have the most hyper-militaristic state on the planet? So I wonder if you think it's fair to say, and, and if so, how we get around the notion that 
nuclear weapons for North Korea are, are existential, not for the North Korean people, but for the regime. Well, I definitely believe that. And it's based on basically the last three decades of trying to watch how this has unfolded. Uh, North Korea is a country that is built on a myth as much as anything else. And the right to pursue the world's most dangerous weapons is something that the current leader's grandfather and father both believed. And having arrived at that capability very much in his father's time, but proving that ability now in his own, it's just really implausible to imagine that this new leader just walking away from the myth, which seems to be the only thing that held that country together in the face of mass starvation and other kinds of travesties. So I just, it's just very, very low probability we're moving into that realm unless they really are at the brink of some kind of a bad break and they need aid and support in order to preserve his leadership. And he's a relatively young leader and maybe he'd rather live and remain leader. But there's no evidence to suggest that 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 is the motivation for this right now. And Stephen, for those listening, uh, how can they get involved or just see what's going on with Stephen Yates's quest to be the lieutenant governor in the great state of Idaho? Well, I appreciate that. Uh, my website is yatesforidaho.com. That's Yates, F-O-R, Idaho.com. Uh, and they can go look for Yates, the number for Idaho, on social media and find our pages there. And uh, this is actually one of those states where some of the research needed to maintain counterproliferation and safe nukes are actually done. So it, there is an actual Idaho tie to keeping the world safe from these things. I love Idaho. I hope to see you out there again soon, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining us. Stephen Yates of D.C. International Advisory. Steve, all the best. Thank you, Buck. Take care. Team, we're going to roll into a break here. Third hour coming up in uh, just a little bit. We'll talk about Roseanne rebooted. And I guess I didn't mean to imply that you're some right-wing jackass. I should have tried to understand why you voted the crazy way that you did. And I should have understood that, you know, you want the government to give everybody free health care because you're a good-hearted person who can't do simple math. So that's just a, a little, little teaser, a little bit from the Roseanne relaunch. Oh, by the way, welcome to the third hour of the Buck Sexton Show. So, yeah, you have Roseanne, uh, which is a show that I have to admit I never saw a single episode of. But it was on when I was pretty young, I think, when it was having its run. It's 20 years, 20 years ago, right? Yeah. So I was uh, a teenager. I wasn't I wasn't watching Roseanne. I did used to watch a lot of Married with Children, which I uh, which I very much enjoyed at the time. But I never watched Roseanne because I always felt like uh, the, the dad in Married with Children. He was a Trump voter before there before there was a Trump campaign. Right. I mean, that guy, that guy's voting for Trump. That dad is voting for Trump. Faux show. No doubt about it. Um, but Roseanne. Is a, It was a very popular series. I know many of you know much more about it than I do because I've never seen it. I'm going to have to watch now because it's getting so much attention for one simple, well, two simple reasons. One reason is that 18 million, is that what it was for the premiere? 18 million people tuned in to see this show. A relaunch of a 20-year-old show. And I, I've never been a Roseanne Barr fan. You know, I've never liked really anything that I've seen her in, so I can't speak to her ability or talent. But 18 million people, those are like Walking Dead in its heyday numbers. I mean, that's that's big. 
That is monstrous for a TV audience these days. By way of comparison, in primetime, CNN will get like 700,000 total. So Roseanne comes back, huge ratings right away. And you're already, I'm already reading some of the articles saying, well, it's not as good as the original or whatever. You know what the other big issue is, or the other reason people are talking about it, including me here on the show, is that she is openly a pro-Trump, Trump-voting Republican or whatever, right of center, however she's going to self-describe on that. And this is one of these times where, where you have to look at the media landscape and think to yourself, you know, if it really were just about profit motive, if it were about profit motive, there would be some changes made to the what kind of shows get made and who they're trying to appeal to, what are the storylines. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mince words here. Conservatives just like stories about good and evil where the good guys beat the bad guys and we can relate to the story, we can relate to the people. Liberals want, you know, everyone is so messed up and just like it's all so angsty and there's so much complexity and everyone's dirty and everyone's bad and every, you know, it's also a description, by the way, if you try to go see any of like the hip Broadway plays, which occasionally I've been uh, forced to go to usually on dates in my single in my single life. Um, they're they're all about uh, either ba- or either outright bashing Republicans, Broadway shows in New York City. I don't mean the, you know, 42nd Street and, the you know, guys and dolls and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about the new plays that get a lot of buzz. They're about bashing Republicans or they're about transgender issues. They're about, you know, really on the on the edge of the progressive vanguard. That's where they all are. But you see this in mass media, too. You know, you can't turn on any of the major broadcast channels and see a new show, generally speaking, and not see the politics coming through. Uh, if if you watch any of the shows, I forget her name, but who's the one who does Grey's Anatomy, which I've had some ladies have maybe watched in the past. Grey's Anatomy and also, I forget her, she's a big showrunner and also does that show Scandal, which is, a, I know ladies, if you like to watch it with a glass of red wine in your hand, I'm not hating on, on that, I just, it's a preposterous show. They're like, well, the real CIA's actual CIA is a CIA inside the mountain, and this is my dad. My dad's also the head of the CIA, who's also the president. It's total. Sh- Shonda Rhimes? Yeah, Shonda Rhimes. Thank you. Shonda Rhimes shows all have a left-wing bias, right? J.J. Uh, Abrams all have a left-wing bias. You see this, these big names, and they have access, my friends. They're not actually necessarily, and in many cases are not, better than the other people in the medium. They are connected. They have access. They can get stuff made. If it were about who is going to draw the biggest audience, don't you think that maybe they could look at, say, the the example of Fox News? What's the most successful cable channel on TV, period, right now? Fox News. Apart from whether you think it does the best programming or you're not that into it, Fox News caters to this little demographic called half of America. And some Democrats. But half of America, roughly, is like, well, I, I don't really want to watch the I Hate Trump channel, so I'm going to, or which is all CNN is. Even if you're a Democrat, it's like you have to be on the I Hate Trump train or else you don't want to watch CNN. It's pretty much the same with MSNBC. Although MSNBC has some more Republican-ish types on these days. It's a little bit, a little surprising. MSNBC is like, you know what, maybe occasionally we'll have an interesting conversation on the show. Occasionally, right? It's not just, CNN, no. 
They do not have interesting conversations. But you look at the news landscape, and then you see how it plays out in the mass media landscape, and Roseanne is just another huge data point in the there's a partisan bias against certain kinds of shows, certain people writing shows, acting in shows. I mean, there is an anti-conservative, and I know this isn't new. We've known this now for a few decades. It's been out there. People have written on it. But this is a quite a big case, isn't it? Oh, let's do a show where there's actually somebody who supports Trump and is funny about it, and it is crushing, crushing other shows in the ratings from day one. I mean, 18 million folks. That is that is a tremendous audience. And, you know, it, it makes me think of a few things. One is, as I was uh, over the weekend, I told you I went to see some live comedy. And a hat tip to my friend Jimmy Fallon, who also you'll see pop up on Fox News sometimes, he's a stand-up comedian. He was the MC of the night. They had some great comedians there. But generally, generally speaking, I think the left has managed to not only dominate the platforms for scripted television, things like Roseanne, they've also managed to push and scare away conservative comedy, which I don't mean comedy like, you know, you, you know, hey, like, my name is Bill. Like, I live in Appalachia. Like, I'm going to talk about driving a pickup truck and make jokes about it. That's cool, too, by the way. But that's, I don't mean conservative as in culturally conservative. I just mean making fun of the absurdity around us in day-to-day life. You know, you, you can't be a comedian these days and make jokes about how we're supposed to use pronouns that were literally made up in the last 12 months. Zer, excuse me, zer, are you being naughty, zer? It's ridiculous, right? I mean, this is this is goldmine stuff for comedians. Can't can't do it. Can't get away with it. When Dave Chappelle came back, who was absolutely at the at the peak of his powers, top of the comedy game, a lot of, you know, curse words and stuff. You got to be okay with that, but he was very very funny in the like early 2000s. He just came back a year or two ago. People were saying that his comedy was offensive. People look at retrospectives of Robin Williams' life and they go, oh, we can't. You know, Robin Williams did a lot of accents. Robin Williams did accents on TV that everyone laughed at because they were supposed to be funny, and they were funny, but now if you did it, you'd get picketed. You might get fired. I can't even. There's a whole bunch of accents that I could do on the show that I'd love to, and my close friends and family know this, but I can't do them because I'd get in trouble. They'd say, you're punching down. I'd say, no, I'm just creating characters. No, you're punching down. I can do uh, white male accents, white male European accents. That's what I'm allowed to do on the show, basically. Anything beyond that, you know, oh, I don't know, you know. And I'm hoping nobody named uh, Giuseppe called me and said, hey, Buck, why you make the bad accent? See, Italian-Americans have a sense of humor about things. They're cool. Anyway. Roseanne is is doing incredibly well. It's not a surprise, but it's just another data point here that they dominate scripted television the same way they dominate college campuses and the faculty lounges because there is a totalitarianism at the heart of American progressivism. There is a, a, a total information dominance that they seek. And th- that's why they're so hostile toward speech they don't like. That's why they're always talking about deplatforming people. And you see it even with our entertainment media. I mean, we had the the movie on, you know, uh, I can only imagine to that. I mean, I wish I had had the opportunity to invest in that movie beforehand because, you know, you look at that story. 
It's uplifting. It's going to appeal to people, families across the country. And they made it for whatever the guy said. He was on our show last week. $3 million and it's already made like $20 million. That's a pretty darn good investment, right? Didn't take that long to shoot. And the, the risk wasn't that high. They make these other movies $100 million. I mean, I, I watched that, that movie about the woman who has, who has sex with her aquarium pet that won Best Picture, and I was pretty horrified. Whatever, The Shape of Water. And... You know, even Wonder Woman, which I don't think was as great as people thought, but I'm like, Wonder Woman's a way better movie than The Shape of Water. What is going on here? It's political. It's political. If it were just about making money, there'd be more shows like the Roseanne reboot that are meant to appeal to people who don't just want to constantly have entertainment infused with a left-wing sensibility. But it's not just about the profit motive. It's not just about the bottom line. There are ideologues all across this business, gatekeepers, people who are vehemently opposed to traditional Christianity, to stories of, of good and evil that are pretty straightforward, right? They, they, like, uh, they, they, they like it to be all about degrading America, we're the bad guys, degrading American values, uh, finding ways to make this about, you know, uh, they love to tell stories of of oppression, and we all know who the oppressors are, right? It's the white male patriarchy. I mean, that's what is dominating in our in our mass media. Anyway, I, I'm going to have to watch Roseanne now because I'm talking about it on the show, and I'll check it out. I'll let you know if I like it or not. I have a feeling I'll probably be meh. I'm not a big sitcom guy in general. I mean, there are some exceptions to that. And whatever Miss Molly really wants to upset me, she tells me that I'm not Chandler, I'm Ross from Friends. I'm so Chandler. I'm so not Ross. Uh, all right, I got to run into a quick break here. Uh, we'll be back with much more. Stay with me. I don't think this president is vulnerable to the special prosecutor on obstruction of justice or Russian collusion. Under no circumstances can he testify. Already the president's legal team has made a dreadful mistake. They, according to news reports, tried to hire Bob Bennett. Bob Bennett is the lawyer who got President Clinton impeached. He's the one who walked him into the perjury trap. There you have Alan Dershowitz saying that the legal jeopardy for Trump may not be from the Russia collusion investigation. I totally agree on that. I think that's going nowhere. But now there may be some other ways that they get him into trouble. Like, for example, if he were to talk about the Stormy Daniels situation. We'll have to see how this actually plays out. Emily Campagno is with us now. She is a legal and sports business analyst. You can go to emilycampagno.com for more of her work. Emily, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Buck. So the, the president now may have to testify. You know, it's interesting that the media seems to be moving away a little bit from the Russia collusion narrative, although that's still there. And now there could be this problem with talking about uh, the nondisclosure agreement, Stormy Daniels. Could the can the president of the United States be forced via civil litigation to have to get into this stuff? Right. Okay. It's a little bit complicated, but I will walk listeners through it. Sounds good. As it stands, okay. As it stands right now, the president cannot be held liable for civil damages in conduct relating to his presidential powers, but he can be liable in federal court for civil damages related to his personal conduct before he became president. So note that that leaves out whether he can be held liable in state court for civil damages related to his personal conduct before he became president. And that's what is at issue with Stormy Daniels at this point, right? And so kind of taking a step back, basically what what Trump attorneys have argued 
prior to this um, was the Nixon decision, right? The United States Supreme Court Nixon decision, which basically led to the ruling that, you know, it, it, the immunity for his conduct in office. But then that's when Bill Clinton, Paula Jones came along. And that's when the Supreme Court ruled specifically that, immune, that he didn't have immunity from civil damages to, stemming from unofficial conduct. But what's really important here also for listeners to understand is that the Supreme Court specifically said that they weren't talking about anything in state court. They specifically addressed it in a footnote. And so literally that portion of this is unchartered territory. And I do, I argue that we, if any presidency, if any administration will result in the Supreme Court making that clear, it will be this one. Because we, we haven't seen something like this yet um, obviously of this magnitude, but also that fits so squarely within this, right? So we have these two rules that we now know, and we don't know how it applies. Again, civil damages in state court for personal conduct that occurred prior to the presidency. Um, and then, you know, you also mentioned an indictment, right? The, the, a criminal indictment versus um, a congressional. And that's a constitutional question too, about whether a sitting president can be criminally prosecuted. And frankly, there isn't a clear answer. It has never happened before, and no court has definitively ruled on the issue. The Supreme Court heard arguments about it in the Nixon case, but they didn't resolve the question. So, you know, we have, and, and frankly, I've heard legal experts on both sides arguing whether or not the um, cases of impeachment extend further than the removal from office. I mean, that's what the Constitution says, obviously, but it doesn't explicitly state whether he can be, pro or she, whether a president, he or she, can be prosecuted while in office. Um, so, frankly, arguments are based on structure and inference. We do not have specific precedents for that. Now, the lawyer for uh, Ms. Daniels, or whatever her, her, you know, her actual legal name is, is saying that he now wants to get uh, clarity on what Trump knew about the payment uh, to Stormy Daniels for $130,000. How can he force that process? Can he force that process? That process can only be forced in, first of all, it would be forced by the courts. It would not be forced by an attorney. And secondly, it would come in the process of discovery and likely in the defamation case. So we know that Stormy Daniels, Stephanie Clifford, uh, sued to sued in court to have the courts designate that the NDA was invalid. And at the same time, we have an arbitration clause and we have uh, Michael Cohen's team trying to get it into arbitration. And the temporary restraining order that was passed, that was levied by an arbiter that prohibited her from speaking publicly. And yet, you know, she violated it by going on 60 Minutes. Um, and so then she, re she amended that lawsuit to include defamation. And the defamation is specifically against Michael Cohen. And it would be in that discovery period where we would be or the president might be forced to see, uh, forced to um, give over, hand over evidence of what he knew and when. That's when it would come into play. But with that arbitration clause, by the way, that's valid regardless of the validity of the rest of the contract. And California law is explicitly clear on that fact. So I hope I'm not being convoluted, but I just mean to show the listeners there are so many different things at play. It is not a singular dimensional analysis. Emily, There's before no we let you go, we only got about 30 seconds. I just want to. So this is a legal headache that's going to continue to be a problem for the president for the months ahead. Right. This isn't going away quickly. Yes. And that that headache will come in m multifaceted and concurrent 
avenues. All right. We'll have to have you back to tell us what's actually going on with it, Emily, because it seems like the administration, uh, they're in need of a good lawyer. I might have to have some people reach out to you, actually. (laughs) They're they're having a tough time. If you need anything, guys, follow me on Twitter at Emily Campagno. I'm happy to answer any questions. There you go. EmilyCampagno.com. She's a legal analyst. Check it out. Emily, thank you so much for joining us from the West Coast. Great to have you and come back soon. Thanks, Buck. Team, rolling into a quick break. When we come back, I've got some news from Walmart for you all. You'll want to hear it. Stay with me. OMG, like I'm totes so upset because I can't get Cosmo anymore at Walmart. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Cosmopolitan, which is a magazine that generally has uh, cover photos of very attractive young women and then lots of stuff about how to please your man. You know, 35 ways to please your man. I'm always like, I can think of like three or four, but 35 seems like a lot to me. Uh, Cosmo has been around for a long time. A lot of these magazines, they deal with women's health and beauty and But there's also some more salacious content. And finally, Walmart, the biggest retailer in the country, decided that it was time to give Cosmo the boot. Now, I know a lot of you are like, Buck, I don't read Cosmo. I don't care. Fine. But this is a part of the or being it's being said, at least, that it's a part of a Me Too movement that the uh, sexualization of women in some of these magazines is coming under fire from the, the me too movement. And I, I wonder how much more this will have to go with. I mean, this is what the, uh, the New York times writes about this, that the magazines will be placed on racks elsewhere, varying by store. Uh, the April issue features Cardi B. I don't know who that is. Who's Cardi B. Do I, am I supposed to know this? A rapper. Cardi B, the rapper. Gosh, I, I still used to be an exotic dancer, according to Brandon. Thank you, Brandon. I, I was unaware of that. I, I still remember when I bought my first, uh, my first cassette tape of Salt and Pepper. Oh yeah, that was way back. This when I had a Walkman, but my Walkman was cool because my Walkman had a thing that you like locked on it. That meant that it wouldn't skip, you know, if you were out like breakdancing in the streets or going with yellow and waterproof. Yeah, of course. I had a yellow waterproof walk, man. Obviously. I remember going with my with my mom and my older brother to a an electronic store here in the city. It was actually called The Wiz. And I recall, was that a national chain or just a New York thing? I don't even remember now. Was it national? Uh, national. It was national, okay. Well, at least East Coast. I, I do remember being there, and it was always like you could never find anyone to actually let you buy anything. Like, there were people who worked there, but it was always a hassle to get somebody to actually be like, oh, you would like to buy this item, and you would like to check out with it? But I remember buying the, the biggest boombox that we could get. You know, that was the thing. You wanted a big boom box. I mean, now all electronics is all about miniaturization, but we forget there was a time when you wanted like big speakers. That was cool. You know, in your college dorm room, Brandon knows what I'm talking about. In your college dorm room, you wanted speakers that could go like across the entire campus. Now I literally think of, that this is a form of torture, right? That, that being around super loud music of any kind, I'm like, I want earplugs. It hurts my ears. Turn it down. Uh, what the? Oh, yeah. Back to Cosmo. Cardi B is how I got on this. I just learned something new. 
I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell Miss Molly, hey, Miss Molly, um, you know, Cardi B was on the cover of Cosmo. And she's going to be like, Obvi. She works in fashion, so she, she knows about these things. I do not know any of this. Anyway, uh, but back to the problem here. The problem with Cosmopolitan, and they're not taking it out of the store. They're just removing it from the grab-and-go rack at the end, which is where Whole Foods puts its uh, sea salt chocolate bars and tricks me all the time into buying it. But the, the racks at the end, that's where they have the Cosmo magazine, and people are are upset now, and it's not. This isn't like a a right wing censorship thing. People don't like the objectification women that occurs in these magazines. I will say that uh, I, I remember when I was actually in Jesuit high school, and they decided to treat Maxim. Remember Maxim magazine? I remember Maxim magazine. I used to be a big fan of Maxim magazine. I'm just saying. Look, I, I keep it real. I keep it honest here. I used to. When I was in high school, Maxim Magazine was amazing. And the issue of gear with Jessica Biel in it, I also remember that. Not not on Seventh Heaven anymore, Jessica. It was a whole change of, you know, you, you remember these things, right? You, you, you go back into your youth. I'm sure some of you listening were big fans of who, who was like the, who were like the it, who was the it celebrity female in like the, the 70s? I don't, I have no idea, right? But I. Like I was Bo, Bo Derek. I was yeah, Bo Derek. Okay, there you go. I was gonna say like Catherine Deneuve, but it's like whoa. I mean, for our for our World War II vets in the audience, that's definitely uh, Catherine Deneuve. Sure, I think she's a little bit. That's a little bit earlier though. I think she was more like a '50s icon, not so much a '60s and '70s one. Anyway, I remember when we decided that Maxim magazine was going to be banned and treated the same way in my high school that Playboy was. So if you had Maxim, you were going to detention for a long time. And some of us tried to argue that for all of five seconds before the Jesuits were like, you're on scholarship. You don't get to argue about rules. And we were like, OK, sorry, Father so-and-so. Anyway, uh, so Cosmo has gotten pulled down. It's part of the Me Too movement. It's, it's still in the stores. It just is getting moved to the racks. But I, I always wonder, why do, why do women read it? You know, I, I've, I've actually never read Cosmopolitan in any – this is a true, true statement. Never read it in any detail – but just from seeing the cover, because if you're in the checkout line at Walmart or a grocery store, you always see it. It's always like, OMG, how to lose like 10 pounds in three days and do it just by eating frozen carrots. And it's amazing. I don't it never really never really appealed to me. Like, I understand why Maxim appealed to the male psyche. I don't understand why Cosmopolitan, which was creating these. Uh, impossible to attain expectations of, of physical beauty. And then also it's always about how to how to keep your guy interested and like do it in a way that he will never think of cheating on you with your best friend. I I think it's a good thing that uh, the you know the I'm never for censorship really per se, but I think we can live without having Cosmo front and center. I, I'm all right with it. So so Walmart, I'm with you on this one. Good. Uh, it's a good week. It's a good week for America. All right, we got uh, some roll call coming up here in just a second, so stay with me. I'll be right back. Hey, team, before I get into the latest edition of Roll Call, I've been reading a lot recently about health and wellness, mostly because I don't want to have to get a couple of new summer suits because, you know, fighting the dad bod. And you know what I just keep coming up against? there's this whole notion of buck you can't just eat chocolate 
when you feel like it or hey maybe an entire plate of bacon as a side instead of a piece of bacon is not the way to go you know there's this self-control aspect of trying to lean out that I'm now at an age where I start to think is it even really worth it (laughs) do I even really care enough about this it actually kind of reminds me of this guy I worked with overseas years ago who was a former, uh, he was an operator, special forces guy. And, and he said, you know, I don't trust anybody over 35 who's got a six pack, you know, who's got six pack abs. But I find the biggest thing for me, the one change that I can make is trying to eat earlier in the day. You know, it's so much better for you, I'm told, and from my experience to eat dinner at like seven or even six. But then when it's time for me to go to bed, man, do I get hungry. <laughs> I thought you were um, trying to lose weight. Lay off me, I'm starving. And I really should give up French fries too. I probably should have given them up for Lent too late now. Uh, but these are my weaknesses. You know, you, you gotta you gotta understand where you where you can fall short sometimes. And for me, chocolate, French fries. Yes, some delicious tequila, wine. These are the things that I just I just can't give up. You know, I'm I'm a pretty clean living guy, but anyway, I just need to need to work on the discipline factor. With that, with my bemoaning of the fight against the dad bod, I would like to transition us into oh, you know what's coming up. The roll call. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Ask and ye shall receive, team. Some of you wanted the music for Roll Call to be a little more drum-heavy, and th- there you have it. We'll, we'll keep mixing it up and see if we can get one that just that it's not too hot, not too cold, just right. Now, into our Team Buck inbox here, facebook.com slash bucksexton. If you want to join in on the conversation, send me a note there. We read through everything in the box, and we pick out and read what we can as it comes in. Thomas is up first. He writes, Buck, the recent expulsion of Russian diplomats from the U.S. and many countries in Europe struck me as a political gesture of solidarity of allies rather than a rational response to a poisoning event in London. Do you think it could be possible a third party was responsible in an effort to escalate friction between our allies and Russia. I know reports say Russian nerve gas was responsible, and the media was quick to claim Russia was responsible, but something just doesn't smell right about the whole thing. Putin and the Kremlin denounced the poisoning. Not a surprise, but they have made no noise about the expulsion of their diplomats. Typical of them to go quiet and search out who is responsible. Any further action by the U.S. would be unwarranted, Shields high. Um, if the oh wait, one more thing. If the progressives try to escalate this event, then I would be suspicious of them more than the Russians. Yeah, Thomas, it sounds a bit like the plot to a. Uh, I think it actually is the plot for the sum of all fears, uh, at least the movie version of it with Ben Affleck. Where, by the way, they changed out the jihadist terrorists for blonde hair, like bleach blonde haired white supremacist German guys. I didn't see the whole movie. I saw parts of it. I was like, this is such garbage. Uh, And really, most things affiliated with Ben Affleck, including his recent tattoo choice, folks. I don't know if you've seen it, but 
Apparently, Ben Affleck uh, has joined the Yakuza based on the tattoo that he has. This was pointed out to me by Miss Molly in one of these uh, magazines that posts all the celebrity photos. And I said, no way that thing is real. Oh, oh, it's real, apparently. But anyway, uh, I, I, Thomas, I think that Novichok, back to the substance of your question, Novichok is uh, Russian proprietary chemical weapon, and I just can't see why anybody else would uh, would do this, take the risk, go through all of the of the hurdles uh, in order to poison a Russian dissident to, to create discord between the U.S. and Russia. If they really wanted to create discord, they could just have a Russian plane shoot one of our planes out of the sky over Syria and say, oops, sorry. That would escalate things real fast, wouldn't it? So, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways that uh, to look at this. And I, I don't think that it's ever a bad idea to try to take different angles. But I think the Russians are behind this one, just like they were the poisoning of Litvinenko. Uh, Paul writes in next. He writes, uh, whoops, let's get to it. Hey, Buck, there are about 10 million Republicans in California. In my hack opinion... About 40% of the state is hardcore, indoctrinated, hopeless liberals. The rest are much more free-thinking than most outsiders would believe. I'm a small government conservative, but many are somewhere in between. I wish President Trump would come out here and set up camp and do a series of Trump rallies. Yeah, Paul, I, I want to get a better sense of, and, and part of this, I think, would come from the organization and mobilization of conservatives in California. It's such a big state. And, you know, I love California. I'm actually going out there in a few weeks, by the way. I'm going to be doing a whole bunch of work. I'll be out on the West Coast uh, meeting with our iHeart team out there. Uh, so I love California, but I just have a tough time with California state governance. You know, I, I think that they're doing a terrible job. And I know there are a lot of conservatives out there. I hope they listen to this show and feel some solidarity with me being a New Yorker who's surrounded by far left wing radicals. And if they're in California, I know some counties are a little more conservative. You know, Orange County, from what I understand, has got a pretty good core of conservatives. Uh, but it, you, you raise some interesting points and I'm going to keep an eye on it. Uh here we go. William writes the next one. Can't you just record Shields High in your spare time and once a quarter put together a nice two hour show or twice a year, like around Fourth of July and Christmas, a three hour Shields High story time? Sometimes we need a good story. Well, William, uh, that is definitely an option. And it's one that I'll consider for trying to get Shields High back up and running. I, you know, those of you who follow my work pretty closely know that yesterday I think I was I think I did three different shows throughout the day on Fox News and did a three hour radio show and had to handle a bunch of other not now. You know what? Somebody pull over the ambulance because Buck is whining. Oh, it's so hard to work in the media. I know I should. You know, I'm just saying I don't have that much time, but don't let me get out the world's smallest violin for myself. Uh, let's see what we have here next. Rita. Writes, learned a new word today, oclocracy. Good show. Well, Rita, I want to work more really cool words into the show as we go through things. So uh, oclocracy is certainly on the list. And I'm going to try to, I'm not going to do a word of the day that's a little bit. Didn't O'Reilly do that? for? Yeah, he used to do that at the end of his show. Uh, but I will try to work as many as I can, uh, many in as I can. 
Don writes, thanks for your contributions on Fox News. Well, thank you, Don. I hope you get a chance to check them out. And I uh, very much appreciate you noticing that I'm always hustling there over at Fox, trying to bring the best information and analysis I can. And I love it when folks on the team get to see me on Fox and then they listen in on the radio show. Uh, Steve writes next. Hey, Buck, original Team Buck squad from the Saturday show, OSS, here in the People's Republic of California. I'm a faithful podcast listener and love the show. However, your audio clips come over as inaudible more times than not, and it's extremely frustrating. Hope the tech wizards can hook you up. Uh, well, I'm gonna, yo, hey, uh, Brandon and producer Mike, can you guys take a look at this and tell me what's going on here? I... Sounds fine to me in here. We're having uh, sometimes technology is so frustrating. I don't want any problems on the podcast. A lot of you listen on the podcast. Like I said, we our Team Buck podcast is the size of a of a large sports stadium every day, full of people. Right? It's it's big. So I really want everyone to be able to uh, hear it as best as they possibly can. So I will stay on that, and uh, I'll get you some answers on that. In the meantime, folks, we have. Two more days of show this week, which means I've got a lot more to tell you. So uh, get ready for that. Please spread the word. Tell a friend about the Buck Sexton Show. They can download the podcast on iTunes. Until tomorrow, squad, there's always stuff that'll happen. But you know what? It's up to you to make sure you keep your shields high.